Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you all. This is the Business Day Spotlight, your destination for African business made simple. My name is Mariwa Gavaza, and for today, we do get into a conversation around um, investment um, on the African continent. And, uh, you know, the main thing we are wanting to check, know, and understand is, uh, you know, is there really that much uh, capital that is flowing, you know, to our shores and our markets, or could there be more that could be you know coming our ways and what are some of the reasons you know for some of this um, and luckily for us there is a uh, a group uh, that has done a uh, a nice uh, bit of research uh, that is uh, the Bridgeband group and uh, today we're going to be talking to Bernard Chizero um, uh, who's going to be giving us some insight into a report that they recently uh, brought out um, around the state um, of investments and capital flows into the continent and we're going to be trying to understand what's been going on. Bernard, greetings to you. Thank you, Madiwa. Thank you for having me on your show. Before we set off and uh, get into the nitty-gritties of the report, is just around the... Uh, Bridgepan Group, you know, maybe a little bit of insight for those that may not have heard of, um, you know, just so that people understand the context, you know, that you're coming from. Bridgepan is a what we call a mission-driven nonprofit organization. We provide advisory services to philanthropists, to foundations, to non-governmental organizations to help them enhance their social and environmental impact. Uh, So it's really about uh, helping in emerging markets, in less developed countries, um, organizations who want to do more to to enhance their social impact. We provide strategy advice to foundations, for example. We provide advice to impact investors, which is the the subject of the report. with a view to addressing social issues. All right, cool. Okay, so now that we are here, maybe we can get a sense of, um, because I think capital flows in and out of the African continent are measured in in, in many different ways. Um, I know one of the ones that I personally keep a track of is uh, startup funding, you know, venture capital funds. I think in the last year, we're looking at roughly five or so billion dollars compared to 170 or so billion globally, you know, for so very tiny amounts. So that's in the startup space, in the VC and venture capital space. Maybe you could um, give us some insight into what a similar metric looks like, you know, uh, social, uh, I guess, impact investment funds globally versus what we're seeing on the continent. That's a very good starting point, uh, Mudiwa, because the reason why we started doing this this research, which we started about 12, 18 months ago, was because of a data point which we came across, uh, which was that Worldwide, there's about $1.2 trillion under management in the impact investing space. Um, Impact investing defined as seeking to have a social impact, but also investors seeking to generate a financial return in order to sustain that impact. $1.2 trillion. Of that, the African continent represents 2%. Now, if you think about 
the population of Africa uh, with respect or with regard to the global population, we're at about 18, 18% if we include uh, North Africa. So 18% of the world's population getting 2% of impact investment funding globally is a drop in the ocean. That data point combined with the fact that the United Nations has said Africa needs $200 billion per year to, in addition to what it's, it's getting now in terms of investment, to achieve our um, uh, SDGs. Um, so clearly there's a gap. Um, and that figure made us try and understand why more capital isn't flowing into African impact investment fund managers uh, and, and what can be done about it. So from the reading, you know, that you that you are making, um, I guess I'm just doing some quick back of the napkin, you know, uh, mathematics here to say that, uh, you know, 2% of that, you know, really huge number, um, at, at least it's something in the billions, you know, at least you're looking at yeah, at, at least you know you're talking about you know something in the in the tens of billions or whatever it is. So at least there's that. But like you said, comparatively, two uh, percent to a you know to a continent with a billion people, um, you know, isn't isn't much. Uh, but you know, depending on what definitions you're you're looking at, some may argue that impact investing is the type of investment. Uh, that is needed on the African continent, and I guess it begs the question of why, you know, the uh, probably one of the regions that probably needs the most impact investing isn't getting, um, you know, those impact investing flows. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We're not getting the impact investing flows that we we need so desperately, um, and and one of the reasons, well, two of the main reasons for that is the global perception of investing in Africa in terms of uh, foreign currency risk, economic risk, uh, political risk, these typical risk um, uh, metrics that investors will use. Um, and so that puts us at a disadvantage from the get-go. Uh, when we started the research, we spoke to local African fund managers to understand what challenges they faced in attracting more uh, investors into their funds. And in addition to these risks, they mentioned the fact that a lot of LPs or limited partners, the investors in, in funds, use due diligence criteria to assess a potential investment in a fund that is largely Western-based um, and puts African fund managers at a disadvantage. I'll give you three examples. One is top of their, their checklist, so to speak, is they want to see a team of professionals with experience in private equity or corporate finance uh, that have worked together for a significant period and have a track record, second reason. Um, third, they want to see evidence that these teams are able to assess risk and make investments and generate returns, as well as measure the impact that they're, they're having, the social and, and environmental impact that they're having. And more often than not, the teams that 
come together to raise African-based funds, individually have the experience, whether it's in private equity, banking, corporate finance, but can't demonstrate that they've worked together for, say, a decade and work well as a team that complements each other. So off the bat, they have to go a lot further to convince investors of their capabilities. Um, the, other, the other reason is that the fund sizes in Africa, particularly if we're looking at Africa as a collective of different countries, fund sizes tend to be much smaller than what global investors typically have uh, conditioned in, in, their, in their mindsets. You know, they're thinking of hundreds of billion dollars of uh, size of funds. Whereas in Africa, a fund of $50 million, particularly an impact fund, is already quite significant. But the economics for an investor to even bother to have a look at that fund and do the screening and the due diligence doesn't work for them. So these funds tend to struggle to get going. Once they do get going and they raise their first $25, $50 million, they uh, and start to get a track record, then they start to attract more funding. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a, a women-led fund based in, in South Africa took them eight years to raise their first 25 million. They're now a hundred million uh, dollar fund. But it's very difficult for a team of aspiring fund managers to have eight years of capital just to do the fundraising. And they have to dig into their own personal savings in this particular case, which is, which is explicit in the report. Um, the two of the team members simply said, I can't afford to do this anymore. Um, so these are the kinds of challenges that, that they face in, in, in raising funds. And the other, the other actually, is, sorry, yeah. Bernard, uh, you know, to cut you off, I know that you're about to give us some other examples, but I felt it necessary, especially after, you know, those two points that you just raised now, uh, firstly around some of the stringent conditions, um, that that are in place when it comes to raising funds. But secondly, um, what comes out of that example is the type of survival. You need to have money to survive, to raise the money, to do what it is that you actually are setting out to do. Um, and what I wanted to get quickly, maybe it's a backtracking a bit, but I was hoping maybe it's a refinement because you explained earlier on, you know, that as Bridgespan, you know, how, how you guys are helping when it comes to um, the NGO world, nonprofits, uh, impact investing, that type of thing. When people are going out and looking for, 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 for these funds, right? How, how are they positioning themselves, right? Um, are they positioning themselves? And especially because you're talking about the fact that, uh, you know, these are teams where they're expecting, you know, to have, they're expecting teams that have private equity experience and all of this stuff. But when the guys are actually going out and raising the capital, how are they positioning what it is that they're doing? Are they positioning themselves as nonprofits? Are they positioning themselves as impact funds? Like what's the definitions that are being used uh, in whatever engagements that are being had? That's a fantastic question. Um, so, Madiwa, initially, these funds would try and position themselves as impact investment funds. In other words, they go and make their pitches. 
They say our mission is to channel more funding into uh, uh, startup businesses in Africa, into small and medium businesses, into women-owned businesses, because that's going to have a social impact in creating employment, in addressing issues of uh, gender equity, and so forth. And what they found over time is that was actually working against them. The bulk of investors in impact investment funds want to see a return on their capital, market-adjusted, risk-adjusted return on their capital. But they want to hear that story before they're ready to listen to the impact story. Um, so a lot of these, these new funds or emerging funds have changed their narrative from for example, we are a gender-driven fund to address gender equity. We want to invest in, in women-owned businesses. To we are a private equity fund that invests with a gender lens. So you can see the nuance. They're moving away from the impact label because it has connotations with, okay, impact but sub-commercial returns, to commercial returns with impact. The narrative needs to be that both can go hand in hand. If you're able to channel funding through African fund managers into African businesses, you'll have an impact, whether it's job creation, as long as it's responsible investing in, in responsible sectors like health, education, renewables, and so forth. If you're attracting capital and it's generating a commercial return, you're having an impact. So they've shifted their narrative for that reason. A few years ago, when I went to Rhodes Business School, um, the the leaning of almost all our courses was around sustainability, right? Um, and the thinking from the school at the time, which was in the early to mid-2010s, was um, issues of sustainability are going to be big going forward. Right. We need to be thinking, you know, from a management point of view, board level, investing level, you need to be thinking with a lens of sustainability over um, whatever it is that you're doing. Fast forward to the 2020s and literally it, it seems as if, you know, everyone is now talking about issues of sustainability and impact. And even I think some of the biggest fund managers in the world, the likes of BlackRock, you know, will make certain demands of companies that they are investing in to say, what are you guys doing about X, Y, Z issue? From that point of view, that context, it really, I'm struggling to understand, right? Why then, uh, I guess it brings us back to where we even began today's conversation, you know, to say against that global context, why it then becomes a hard for, for people to raise funds on the impact story and then have to sort of backtrack and re-strategize, you know, to say, you know, we are, to use your example, we are private equity investing with a gender lens, you know, using that example. Because I guess from the outside looking in, one would think that there's just bucket loads of money that are going towards um, you know, some of this, these issues. Am I sensing some dissonance between, you know, how things look versus how things actually are operating? I don't think it's so much dissonance, Madiwa. Um, I think it's definitional. When you were at Rhodes, 
probably the big topic was the acronym ESG, Environment, Sustainability, or Social and, and Governance. And many funds have taken that label and positioned themselves as ESG-focused funds. We want to invest responsibly, no harm to the environment. We don't want to leave anybody behind, and we want to ensure good governance, not just of the fund, but of the companies the funds invest in. It's only more recently that this concept of impact and measuring impact um, has become um, the new investment thesis for accelerating investment and development. Yes, there are, particularly now in the environmental sustainability space, some huge uh, funds that have been created, not just from the COP26 and COP27, uh, but these these funds are rarely finding their way into the smaller, more emerging impact, private equity, whatever label we put it, African-based, African-led funds. So it's not a lack of the magnitude of funding. It's a lack of that funding finding its way to teams on the ground that know the countries, know the markets, understand the risk because they're proximate and can have day-to-day -day relationship with their portfolio companies. Um, what I'm hoping is that the advent of the continental free trade area will actually start to create bigger markets through integration that allow for bigger funds that then tap into these, uh, these funds of funds, so to speak, that address sustainability issues. Um, it would be a very interesting one to see how it develops and evolves over time. Um, I think earlier on, I drew some comparisons to the, to the VC world. And uh, I was very curious when I was first doing a little bit of research about today's conversation, um, you know, to draw another parallel and to test it with you to find out whether or not the same phenomenon is being seen. In um, in the world of VCs and startups, um, I remember we did an investigation around this as Financial Mail, uh, around, and we found that there are a lot of um, startup founders that have chosen to to leave a South Africa, for example, to go live in London, San Francisco, um, you know, some in Singapore, some in New York, uh, you know, so that they can be. <sighs> Can I call it closer to the money, um, you know, <laughs> closer to the money where raising funds from London appears to be much easier than raising funds out of Cape Town or out of um, Johannesburg. And you see the same trend with Nigerian startups as well. A lot of your Nigerian founders, you know, are uh, have based themselves, uh, what you call this, uh, abroad and the like. So people in the invest in the impact investing world, uh, the ones that are able to get, you know, what little of the funds to come to them. Do you guys see the same thing where you sort of have to have that international presence, uh, or founders or some of your, uh, some of your guys sitting in a London or whatever it is to be able to, raise that funding, you know, just keen on those dynamics? So I think I think a lot of the the startups or the the unicorns, and there have been actually a few in, in Africa, 
uh, in Nigeria, in South Africa. The founders tend to emigrate for personal or fiscal reasons, uh, in addition to having access to uh, international um, capital markets. But from an impact investing point of view, that's less of a motivation. What's more relevant is that these fund managers, if they're looking for returns and impact, tend to stay based in an African country or spread within Africa. Uh, some of them were actually originated overseas uh, and still have offices overseas, but increasingly are looking for either ties with local fund managers or establishing their own operations and footprint on the continent, which is actually an excellent way for uh, a global uh, uh, investor in an impact fund, uh, such as TPG, one of the biggest uh, private equity and fund managers in the world, they form alliances with local organizations, local fund managers, and not only provide expertise, but often warehouse some of their funding in these smaller fund managers to give them experience and help them develop track record. Yeah, and uh, we've actually seen TPG you know, getting involved a little bit in some of the some of the venture activity. So it's it's very interesting drawing some of the parallels, um, you know, uh, between the different worlds. And the other curiosity was just around for the funds that are coming, the two percent that we spoke about earlier on. Right now, where is it actually going? Right, geographically, and also um, the causes or the types of investing that uh, it's actually going into is it um i think you used the example of gender issues uh, or gender investing earlier on um you know there's a water crisis all of these things so where's the money actually going geographically and where is it actually going in terms of you know the types of projects that are being uh, funded that's a good question it's it still is typically going to the larger economies uh, in terms of, of the size of, of consumption and economic activity. So Nigeria, if we include Northern uh, North Africa, Egypt, um, uh, uh, East Africa would be Kenya, and, and of course, South Africa. But I think that's that's an evolutionary target, the, the, the lower end of the income pyramid, the so-called bottom of the pyramid. Uh, these kinds of, of investments can have significant impact and be profitable. Um, the whole, the whole uh, uh, climate-related uh, technologies, uh, whether it's, it's uh, typically solar or other renewables, these could be potentially large projects that have significant impact, particularly when they can access concessional finance or, or grants from donor organizations or, or bilateral and multilateral organizations. So still the money is going into the big economies. Um, the more uh, fragile economies or the more the smaller economies largely still depend on development finance institutions. So the likes of African Development Bank, the International Finance Corporation, um, some of the bilateral uh, DFIs like uh, British International Investment and so forth. But hopefully they're paving the way as catalytic investors for philanthropists to come in uh, and for the more mainstream 
impact investors to come in. In the world of philanthropy, <laughs> um, I, I have a little bit of experience working with uh, certain philanthropic groups on the continent. And one of the most interesting discussions that's ongoing, people talk about uh, decolonizing funding or decolonizing uh, philanthropy on the continent. And uh, buzzwords, buzzwords aside, um, I guess the big idea is uh, this thought to say, should African initiatives, you know, in whatever form they're coming in, be so worried or concerned about raising funding internationally? Or should we be finding, you know, ways to build, you know, uh, pools of capital internally, right? Whereas in, because just now we spoke about that, uh, the geographic pool, you know, getting money from other parts of the world and getting it onto the continent. But to say, you know, why aren't we helping to push up our own capital pools? You know, your thoughts, you know, just around that, is it realistic? Are the capital pools big enough, you know, to actually make a dent? So two thoughts on that. First of all, this concept of decolonizing philanthropy. Yes, it may be a buzzword, but it's actually been shown. In fact, Bridgespan did a study, I believe two and a half years ago, which uncovered that most philanthropy funding or um, donor funding for NGOs was going into international NGOs that operate in Africa as opposed to going to African NGOs uh, that operate in Africa. And the reason was both because of economies of scale, but also just because of the way philanthropy was used to working in the past. Um, what we're finding now is some of the, the more, let's say, illuminated uh, donors want to actually decolonize the funding in the sense of providing grants or concessionary finance to local organizations as opposed to setting up shop themselves or funding international NGOs that then set up shop or, 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 or uh, already exist in Africa. So that's one very topical uh, area that's being discussed right now. Um, secondly, we absolutely, and this is probably even more critical, we do need to mobilize more local, whether it's philanthropy, whether it's impact investment, whether it's concessionary finance, whether it's catalytic capital, whether it's VC capital, we need more local capital for local investment. Um, and there are a number of, of constraints to that. Of course, Africa is not you know, one country. It's, it's 54 different countries with different regulations, and it's different, dif difficult to invest across borders, uh, just from a regulatory perspective. Pension funds, for example, um, struggle from a legal perspective to allocate assets for impact investing or private equity across borders. So we need to address those regulatory issues as well. But we do, most uh, foremost, we need to get African philanthropists or foundations to work closer together. So what's being called now uh, collaborative uh, philanthropy. Work closer together, harness the resources 
that individual philanthropists or foundations have and channel it into thematic issues that are of relevance across the continent. Yeah, it will be it will be very interesting. Once once again, I want to to see how it develops, and I'm pretty sure that you know, depending on uh, you know how people think about the different funding structures, uh, that there could be you know a big dent that could be made if you do have a lot more um of that uh, you know of that collaboration you know coming through a little bit more cohesion um you know in the market would probably go you know quite a bit of way now uh, Bernard before we let you go maybe the report we've we've examined a number of things that were probably um I'm going to call it backward looking because you know that tends to be the nature of the report you're looking at uh, you're looking at it from a historical lens uh but if we're going to you know look into the future somehow you know something that's forward looking um any key insights you know that you are looking at perhaps uh you know two points uh that for you are key from a forward looking point of view so in our report we talk about uh, first movers going forward. And what we mean by first movers is investors that can take this catalytic thinking, this forward thinking, and invest in more creative ways into, into African uh, fund managers. And one such approach is, as I mentioned earlier, this concept of warehousing, where uh, an, investment, uh, an investment fund, whether it's local, or international, carves out some of its resources to warehouse with emerging fund managers and provide a back office support, for example, to help them get going. For me, there can be first movers to to do that kind of thing. Um, The second thing is to adjust the way they use stringent due diligence criteria to adapt more to the realities of Africa, uh, to the fact that teams will not have been around necessarily for 10 years or more working together, building a track record. So just to take a different uh, assessment of risk. Um, And the third thing I'll just mention is to look more at impact measurement and management as a criteria for screening and prioritizing fund managers. Some local fund managers are very good at at measuring their impact and reporting on their impact. In fact, moving as far as putting a value, a monetary value on their impact. The problem is that costs money. And if we can get philanthropists, for example, to say, look, we know it's important and it'll help you with your capital raise, we'll help you fund the implementation of an impact measurement and monitoring system uh, or management system, that you can then uh, leverage in your fundraising to show that not only you're making a return, but you have significant credibility in your in your impact. 
Okay. Very interesting one, you know, to see, um, you know, once again, um, a lot of these things, you know, you wait to develop, uh, you wait to see, um, how it develops. It has really been a fascinating conversation, um, you know, looking into the world of impact investing for today, um, learning, you know, quite a number of, uh, things, you know, to say that, um, you know, out of the trillions that are going into, uh, into, um, impact investing, only 2% is coming to, uh, the African continent. And of that, we still see uh, that the same concentration, you know, around the big economies, uh, we see the similar trends, you know, um, South Africa and the South, the places like Ni- uh, like uh, Kenya in, in the East, Egypt, towards, uh, you know, the northern part of Africa, and then obviously uh, Nigeria, um, you know, over in the West as being some of the big hotspots. And also, you know, it was also fascinating understanding how how um, the fundraising approach has had to has had to change and sort of adapt, uh, and uh, I like the fact that uh, you know Bernard said that a lot of it is coming down to definitions. <laughs> you know, it's it's unfortunate, but I guess that's the reality that uh, you know people are dealing with. Uh, you know, out there, that uh, a lot of it has to do with definitions. Whether you're talking about you know impact and then switching it to you know say we are private equity or you know the ESG um, you know title that uh, was traditionally used and how that has uh, evolved over time. So that was very, very key to understand. And then I think lastly, it's also to then um, get a sense to say that, you know, if we were to be a little bit more inward looking in terms of uh, trying to find some of these funds, there is, you know, a lot of room and scope um, to actually generate, you know, really good pools of capital. But it's the it's the cohesion, it's the collaboration uh, that is going to be very important. And I'm guessing this is why uh, Bernard, one of the first things he spoke about at the beginning was uh, the fact that um, organizations like theirs are looking towards the Africa Free Trade uh, Agreement as being one of those things that will possibly help um, to catalyze because if at least you have that in place, it helps to reduce uh, some of the red tape that would normally be found um, when you're dealing with 54 different countries, 54 sets of regulations and, you know, and all of that. So that's been it. Very fascinating. We were talking to uh, Bernard Chizero, who is a senior advisor for the Bridge Span group. Bernard, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Madiwa. It's a pleasure. And that's been it for this edition of the Business Day Spotlight. Remember that you can find our latest podcast on Business Live. That's under the podcast Business Day Spotlight tab on Twitter. We're hashtag BD Spotlight. And remember that you can review and subscribe for free on iono.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you choose to get your pods casted. I've been Mudio Gavaza of the Business Day and Financial Mail. And this has been another edition of the Business Day Spotlight, which is a multimedia live production. So from myself and the rest of the team it is good evening good afternoon and good morning